Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddy Dobbs. I have now been back in the UK for two days, did the thousand mile drive from Barcelona up to Ipswich in England and everything was so, so easy. The Fiat, the trailer, everything worked a dream. Two days, one stop in mid-France, just the middle of the countryside, beautiful area. And then the final slog back, we ended up getting back at 2 a.m. on Thursday. It's now 4 p.m., 3.30 p.m. on Friday. Feel completely settled back, accepted the fact that I'm now fully kitted out in winter gear every day, and yeah, feels good to be back. The Fiat is 400 miles away from 200,000 miles. Funnily enough, I was just talking to a guy downstairs, VW Transporter, 317,000 miles, although it is on to its second engine. I'm fairly sure the Fiat is still on its first engine, which is, well, it's incredible. Right, let's get down to it. Thank you so much everyone for sending in your, uh, your comments and your messages, and thank you everyone for letting me know of the issues with the sound last week. I was heartbroken, but I needed to hear it. I had set up the microphones for just one setting, one output or one input, whatever you call it. So in essence, if you were hearing last week's episode through either just your left or right headphone socket, headphone, what do you call it? Headphone, left or right headphone, then that was my fault. There's nothing wrong with your hardware, apologies. Now the sound should be good. It should be coming from both the left and right. Okay, here we go. Now really, let's get down to it. From Danny. Freddie, I've got a slightly different take on the, B on the KTM subscription model debate. Okay, for everyone who's, uh, who's listening in for the first time, this is where a, a new thing that's becoming more popular, the likes of KTM being BMW, they'll fit your bike with all of the hardware. You then either have to pay a lump sum fee or subscription to keep certain elements of that on. You know, for example, the quick shifter, heated grips, etc., etc. This is Danny's take on it, because a lot of people have been saying it's a complete disgrace, and I'll be completely honest, I have been with those people saying, this is ridiculous. I'm paying for the hardware on my bike. Those heated grips are on my bike, okay? Why do I then have to pay BMW extra just to get something that's already physically on my bike, just so they can turn it on? Well, here's Danny's opinion. Freddie, slightly different take on this. Take one model of bike and one factory production line to produce the bike. That line will have some fixed costs regardless of whether it makes one bike or 100,000 bikes, such as rent slash lease, uh, salaries of workers, etc., etc. Then you have variable costs which change the number of bikes you make, like parts, components, electricity usage, usage etc. If one bike has six electronically controlled options, let's say heated grips, heated seat, quick shifter, riding modes, traction control, and dampening or, and damping modes, then there are something like 64 possible combinations of options for that or for the bike before considering different paint options. So the factory production line has to build a spec sheet and adapt the process to each bike coming down the line, each station on that production line that looks after each element of the bike would need to carry the part for option spec and also the base part, i.e. the normal shifter and the quick shifter. 
This adds time and complexity, which means your that means for fixed costs or that means for your fixed costs in that factory, you're making less bikes. So those costs are recovered on fewer sales, which means higher prices. Then on top of that, in fact, let me just read that one bit again, just because I messed it up. So it's crystal clear. This adds time and complexity, which means for your fixed costs in that factory, you're making less bikes. So those costs are recovered on fewer sales, which means higher prices. Then on top of that, rather than buying 100,000 quick shifters for that production run, you're going to have to buy 50,000 normal ones and 50,000 fancy ones. So you'll pay more due to economies of scale, which when combined with the lower number of overall bikes produced, means a number means a more expensive base spec bike at the end of it. Simplifying the manufacturing process and the number of combinations of bikes produced will lead to better value for everyone, whether you're buying the base spec with the parts deactivated or the higher spec and switching them on because the overall process has been streamlined and made dramatically more efficient. You know, I, yeah, Danny, this is, it makes a boring amount of common sense. I find it incredibly difficult to argue with you. I have been decently strong on saying it's a disgrace, but, you know, you, yes, you sound like probably you're someone who, who knows at least a little bit about what you're talking about here. And that is a very valid point. If these companies can make these bikes for a more reasonable cost for all, and it makes financial sense for all, and that's the reason they're doing it, then yes, I... I I find it hard to have any kind of decent comeback from that point of view. Thank you, Danny, for that. Yeah. Do you know what? You, you actually got me there when I read that. Because I want to be really against it, this idea, because I don't really like the subscription idea. I don't like it. If it's a one-off cost, you know, let's say, okay, I want heated grips, £200. And it's a one-off cost okay, I can stomach that a bit better. If it's a subscription where you're paying X amount of month for heated grips, that's very different. I, I wouldn't be able to swallow that pill as well, but one-off cost, yeah, fine. And even if I'm buying a standard bike, then if, a, if economies of scale mean that actually it's not going to cost more, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Danny, you got me there. I can't argue with that. Thank you, Danny. Uh, I'll move on to the next one. Okay, let's let this open. I've got a few here on my desktop that I've saved. Right, Paul. Hi, Freddie. I've got a dilemma. Six and a half thousand pounds, absolute max, BMW 1200 GS or Triumph 1200 Explorer. Both with spoked wheels and panniers. I've been looking at the Triumph for ages. And then the BMW caught my eye. I've got a 50 mile commute a couple of days a week and a weekend uh, and weekend fun two up maybe help me uh, keep up the good work paul okay paul right you got a situation here two very good adventure bikes one is is the the competitor to the king of the sector and what has been the king of the sector probably for about two decades 
The BMW 1200GS, 6.5K max. You know what, Paul? If, if you can get a BMW 1200GS, if you can get that for the 65 budget, I would say, I would say go for the, the 1200GS. And I almost don't like saying it because I do love my Triumphs, but I'm going to just give you a bit of insight, Paul, as to why I say this. Friend of mine in Ipswich, and I won't I won't mention his name just in case uh, he hasn't run this by uh, by anyone else yet in his family because he's not sure about this. He uh, he bought an adventure bike. He was looking for a long time a good good strong big engined adventure bike. Uh, he he bought a KTM. I think he was also looking, funnily enough, at a Triumph Tiger. Um. He bought the KTM. He's now seriously considering getting a BMW GS because oh, they're just the best. Everyone I speak to who, well, who has either ever owned a BMW GS or currently owns one says it's the best bike they've ever ridden. And I say that with a bit of uncertainty because I don't know if I've ever spoken to someone who's owned a GS and sold it for something else. It seems to be when people have bought the GS, it is just so much so the ultimate motorbike. There's almost nowhere to go. So if you can, uh, you know, if you can, Paul, go for the, the 1200 GS because almost annoyingly so, I hear nothing but good, good things about that. That is meant to be a, a phenomenal motorbike, really phenomenal. So yeah, get that GS if you can. I move on. Next up, from Dale. Uh, okay, I've got a few I want to read out to you. This is all about people's opinions on electric bikes. I, I said it in a YouTube video. I don't think electric motorcycles make sense uh, for anything other than city bikes. The range just isn't there. The charging infrastructure is not there. And I don't think anything will change dramasti or dramatically, dramatically enough in the next 10 years to have any real noticeable difference. Uh, here are a few opinions on it, and I welcome all opinions. I, I want to say that because if people are very strong for electric bikes, great. I want to hear that too. It's I like all opinions. This is from Dale. Freddie, there were quite a few electric bikes at the NEC motorcycle show, but none were of any interest. I just don't see electric as the future for motorcycles. Um, maybe for replace maybe for replacing bicycles. Uh, do, 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 just checking. Yep. And then that's about, uh, about the weather in Spain. Yes, Dale, it was amazing. Thank you. And I'm getting used to the weather here in, in England again. So that's Dale's opinion. This is from Dean. Uh, Freddie, as, as for electric, forget it. It will never be the same as internal combustion. The next one, uh, Freddie, I 100% agree with you on the removable batteries for all EV machines, but it would have to be a universal fit for all vehicles. And more importantly, who would own the technology? Would that be a rich company? You know, who's it going to be? Someone else replied, the other big issue is that until battery technology is vastly improved, the batteries for any reasonable size of motorcycle will simply be too heavy for removable batteries to be viable. In my honest opinion, the key to solving the electric motorcycle issue is in speed of charging. Get an 80% charge in 15 minutes. 
and you aren't so far off the time taken to, re to refuel an in internal combustion engine vehicle. Couple that with a sensible-ish range and the viability's there. Yes, a, a good point. It needs to be 200 miles range minimum for anything other than a city bike. And it needs to be much, much faster, much faster charging times. And I'll read the final one from here before I get on to the main body. Um, am I the only former biker, former biker, who really doesn't get electric bikes? They've been around for a long time, since the 1890s. I'm sorry, I'm not, I can't specifically verify that, but I will happily take this gentleman's word for it. They've been around for a long time, since the 1890s, as an alternative for people who are prejudiced against noisy, smelly, dirty motorbikes. No, I don't look forward to electric bikes, and I'm glad to have been alive in the only period of history when we could enjoy the sight, sound, and smell of a bicycle with an internal combustion engine. You know, that's a very interesting way to look at it because, you know, if you look at it from a bigger picture, it's a very small amount of time, you know, that internal combustion motorbikes have been around. And if things are going the way they are and electrification will be around, let's say in 20 years, well, that means that Internal combustion-engined motorcycles may only have been produced from beginning to end for possibly something like 100 and, God, 140 years, 150 years or so. You know, it's not that long in the grand scheme of things. Interesting way to look at it. Thank you for sending that. Right, I move on. Here we go, here we go. So from Howard, Freddie, I completed my big bike test about five years ago, but I've been riding a vintage Lambretta scooter since, very slow. Six months ago, however, I got the urge to buy a sports bike. I love this, Lambretta to sports bike. It's polar opposites, brilliant. Six months ago, however, I got the urge to buy a sports bike. It finally got me. They look so cool. In the end, I bought a Honda CB, a Honda 600 CBR, 2002 model, full service history, bargain at 2,800 pounds. A bit different from the 1959 Lambretta. Oh, that sounds fabulous. So I've been taking things very slowly and I'm also doing advanced training locally. My point is, it's not been an easy transition Position is hard and strange, I'm 57 years old. Cornering and steering, it's all been a learning curve. At first, I really wasn't sure if I liked it, but now I'm enjoying it. But it's been hard. Maybe I should have gone for a more sit-up, easier handling, less aggressive bike first. Interested in your and your listeners' thoughts. Okay, I'm going to open this up to everyone and I will share the opinions on this. Uh, yes, I, I do like the modern classic bikes. I like comfy bikes, but there'll be plenty of people who are huge sports bikes fans. So I want to keep this as open as possible. Any sports bike riders, get in touch with your opinion. I'll genuinely appreciate that. Howard, yeah, it's a really interesting point you make here. From my opinion, from my opinion, um, I would say, just reading on what you've said, you've come from a Lambretta, you, it, you know, the, the transition you haven't found easy, um, you know, and it's been hard. I, from my point of view as a rider, I'm a slightly lazy, lazy rider. 
I've had more aggressive bikes and they are more work. And I end up thinking, no, I don't want it to be like work. I'm just going to buy a bike that feels much, much easier to ride. Just jump on, no level of daunting at all. Jump on, easy rider, comfortable. It means that I can enjoy every second. I can look around, I can see the scenery with a really comfy bike, whether, whether that's a naked bike, an adventure bike, uh, a cruiser. You know, it means you can sit up and really enjoy the scenery. Uh, and, and I'll make this as open as possible. Um, when I was, you know, when I was in Tenerife, for example, Howard, this is another end of the spectrum. I had the Harley Davidson Pan America, big adventure bike. And I, I spent, it's got to be a five hour day in the saddle on that. And it was just meant to be a two hour ride. And I was just happily whizzing around the mountain, going up the, the volcanoes, uh, close to the beach, into the forests in the far northeastern tip. And I was so comfy the whole day that I just didn't stop riding all day because it was just like sitting in the most perfectly positioned, most natural riding position. And it was such a glorious experience. I didn't want to go home. I jumped off the bike fresh as a daisy after five hours in the saddle. And I had one of the most unforgettable riding days I've ever had. And that was on an adventure bike. It just so comfortable. So I would say just going on what you're saying here, Howard, I would be inclined to say, no, I think nothing's ever a mistake. And, but I would say, try a more relaxing ride, whether that be, whether that be an adventure bike, you know, anything from the 660 Tiger adventure bike from Triumph, you know, or an 850cc BMW adventure bike, or the, the big one, you know, the BMW GS, or go for a Triumph Bonneville or something like this, because it's, or even, you know, Harley Davidson, because you may find, you may find it a more rewarding riding experience because you get, you're so much more relaxed and so much more upright. You get to experience more things around you, I find. Again, I welcome anyone else's opinion, but Howard, I would be inclined to say to you, at the very least, go out and test ride. Okay, as an example, go out and test ride a, a Triumph T100. In fact, I tell you what, if yours is 2,800 pounds, let me keep it a bit closer. Go out and test something like my Bonneville. Go out and test a, an 800cc Triumph Tiger and very possibly go out and test something like, I tell you what, let's chuck in, let's chuck in the Yamaha XSR 700 because that is going to be a dynamic Japanese bike, which will still have much of the performance of your Honda CBR 600, possibly even more, um, in, in that beautiful Japanese package, but it's, it's a much more sit-up riding experience. So if I were you, see if you can find those three bikes, because they're, they're all different in their own right, but they will all be comfortable relative to the Honda CBR uh, 600. And go what you see, uh, go and see what you think about these. It may be a revelation. Right, I'll move on. Thank you, Howard. All the best. Uh, from Matt, this one. Freddie, I spent yesterday walking around Motorcycle Live looking at what new bikes the manufacturers had to offer. I was amazed at just how many have jumped on the heritage modern classic trend. I was expecting adventure bikes galore, but saw more scramblers and cafe racers than anything else. 
I think as a collective buy, I think I think as a collective, bike manufacturers are making a real effort to bring younger people into biking by attracting them to the lifestyle, the clothing, the retro design. And with the finance packages as attractive as some were offering, it's now something I'm genuinely considering. I sat on and immediately fell in love or immediately fell for the Indian Scout range. And the fact I could have one for three years, paying a relatively small amount of money, is just unbelievable. During these three years, I can then save up the remaining amount needed at the end or simply give it back and get another brand new bike for relatively little outlay. I know you've spoken on the podcast before about finance, and I was never convinced, but seeing what you can get has blown me away. If you have a dream bike, it really can be achievable to own if you have a steady, solid income. Thank you, Matt. Matt, I'm glad you brought this up because you're absolutely right. Look, finance is not for everyone. But there are plenty of people on steady, solid incomes. And nothing's guaranteed. But there are plenty of people who are on a really reliable source of income who have, let's say, let's say 3K net a month after taxes, i.e. 3K to play with. You know, 200, 300 even pounds a month. It's not too much to let go of every month for your dream bike. It really isn't. And you're right, Matt. It, and I found this when looking at vehicles. Finance can at its best, open up the realisation of a dream for, for so many of us. You know, who can afford £15,000 just, you know, in their bank? Go on, 15 grand. You know, not many people. But who can afford £300 a month, for example? You know, more people. A lot more people can do that. Yeah, it's still overheads. It can be paying for when the first of the month comes and you've got to pay it. But look from a positive point of view. You have realised a dream to own your dream bike and you only live once. You've only got one opportunity to get that dream bike. Glad you brought that up, Matt. Um, and with regards to, you know, the retros, the cafe races and, and the light... Sorry, I've just fallen over my chair. And the lifestyle associated with it. This is the big thing for me, Matt. It's the lifestyle associated with it. This is what's being brought back, and I feel so strongly about this. More than motorbikes, it's the lifestyle that, that comes with it. It's the glorious lifestyle, you know, and that is especially apparent with regards to, you know, the modern classics and things like that. But it's it relates to all motorbikes. It's a beautiful lifestyle and selling that lifestyle the way that a lot of, you know, these modern classic bikes do so, so well. You know, the cool clothing, you know, jump on and off the bike and you can wear gear that looks good on and off the bike. And, you know, the heritage and, you know, the, the social side of it. The cool side of it, the cool factor, it, it's a really enticing proposition and it's something that's only really been coming back into biking in a significant way over the past, God, you know, not long, five years or so to really bring it back. You know, we used to have the sports bikes, that was one thing, but now the lifestyle element is being sold more than ever 
you know, and that's a huge change in the relatively recent past. And I think it is all the better for it. It's what makes biking, for me, so glorious. Thank you, Matt. Moving on to Daniel in Croatia. From Daniel, Freddie, can you help me out with choosing my first bike? I'm thinking of the Honda Rebel 1100 and the Royal Enfield Classic 350. My usage would be rides on the weekend and every month or two for several days riding to another country on, uh, on the countryside or to the sea. I must say that uh, it is my first bike. I am 184 centimetres tall, that's around about six foot one and 95 kilos, but quite fit to some extent. Maybe uh, we will one day ride together on the coast of Croatia. Well, Daniel, that sounds absolutely fantastic because I love Croatia. So I would love to be able to take you up on that. That's a great question you've got here, Daniel. You're a fairly big guy. And do you know what I'm going to do? Because you're saying, you know, rides out to the countryside, to the sea, coupled with the fact you're a fairly big guy, I'm going to go with the two of those. I know it's your first bike. I'm going to go Honda Rebel 1100 for you, actually. And I, I, let me just chuck. Let me chuck one more into the mix for you, Daniel, because I can see from your, your pick, and both the superb bikes, you'll love both. I can see from your pick you like the, um, you know, the, the classic-style bikes. And also the fact that you've mentioned Honda Rebel 1100, I can tell that you also like the cruiser style of bike as well. I'm going to chuck another one in the mix for you because... Don't overlook these, Daniel. Harley-Davidson Sportster 1200. You can get one of these probably for about the same price as the Honda Rebel 1100. I'm going to look at one. I like keeping it 2008 and onwards. You just get that extra level of modernity. Um, 2000, I mean, here we go. 2012 Harley-Davidson 1200 Sportster. That's just a 10-year-old Harley-Davidson. And you can get those for £5,750. You can get cheaper. You can get them for £5,000, Daniel. I'm hoping it'll be similar in Croatia. So that will be similar to the to the Honda Rebel. So chuck that in the mix as a bit of a left field choice as well, because I, I think you'd be over the moon delighted with one of those sportsters as well. But that's a great trio. I mean, the Royal Enfield Classic 350, just breathtakingly good looking bike. You know, I, I quite like to own one of those. I really, really rate those highly. Keep that in the mix. But I would probably, if I were you, I'd go for the slightly bigger engine Honda Rebel 1100 because you are a bigger guy. But get that Sportster in there as well, Daniel. Get one of those in there as well and see what you think because what you're going to get with that Harley Sportster, you're going to get some more character and you're going to be almost guaranteed the fact it's never going to drop a penny in depreciation. They are rock solid. Daniel, happy riding. Stay in touch. Let me know what you go for. Oh, also, Daniel, I should say one extra thing as well. Just one thing to chuck in there. You're a new rider. When I was a new rider, honestly, I was scared and I was freaked out by Harleys. I thought, come on, I can't buy a Harley as a new bike. They're so easy to ride. You know, the seat height is low down there. I find them incredibly unintimidating. They're not going to be any harder to ride than the Honda Rebel or the Royal Enfield. So don't worry from that perspective either. Right, I move on to Sean. Freddie, all the gear, all the time. 
Now, I do think this is down to personal opinion and will always polarise an audience. Personally, I am an all-the-gear, all-the-time person. However, it's rare that I put on full leathers anymore. Usually some Kevlar jeans, textile jacket and boots. Only time, the only time this sort of thing catches my eye is when I see a super sport fly past on the motorway and the person's wearing a t-shirt. Apart from that, each to their own. The in fact, let me get to your first point because yeah, sometimes it amazes me, Sean, and I'm with you, each to their own, whatever anyone wants to do, let them live their life and let them enjoy it. Yeah, sometimes I do see people, I've seen people wheeling at probably, it's a guess, 85 miles an hour in a t-shirt on the motorway before, wheeling. I mean, it's incredible. Shall I call it brave? Some, some would call it stupid, but yeah, let's call it brave. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, apart from that, each their own. Next point from, from Sean. Oh yeah, okay, this is an interesting one. Freddie, the price of motorbikes. I went to Motorcycle Live at the weekend and can only say I'm astounded by the cost of new bikes. Motorcycling always used to be a kind of cheaper way to have a lot of fun. Now even some 125cc models are costing serious amounts of money. I think it's hard to find a new bike that ticks all the boxes for a reasonable amount of money these days. And while we're on the subject of Motorcycle Live, it was great to see BSA and Royal Enfield fully back in the game. Some really exciting moves from both companies. I also fell in love with the new Triumph Speed Twin 900. If you haven't already, you must give it a look. I'll get to that in a second, Sean. On the subject of electric bikes, I rode one at the weekend and I have to say it's not for me. I just felt like it was soulless. The thrill of a motorbike is the sound, uh, is the smell of fuel, the sound, the almost attachment uh, to, such, uh, to such a powerful machine. The electric bike just felt like it was a passenger, not an integral part of the machine. Um, yeah, Sean, I know I've been told this now with regards to cost. It's very interesting, the feedback you give from Motorcycle Live. I've been hearing non-stop from people that from January get ready because bike prices are about to go up noticeably. You know, and we are pushing up into this, this area where, God, bikes are about as expensive as cars. I'm a strong one for the argument that bikes should be noticeably cheaper than cars, but my lord, there are a lot. It's the norm, I would say, that bikes are as expensive as cars. And that really is. I know, I know I always blab on about it, and I'm sorry, but this is part of the area where the magic of Royal Enfield comes in. Bear with me. Because Royal Enfield sell in such mind-blowingly colossal numbers in India which has a mind-blowingly colossal population, that it is a genuine mode of transport for the masses. And because it's a genuine mode of transport for the masses, they have, as Danny said earlier, huge economies of scale. And with those huge economies of scale, you can get car-like levels of quality with regards to the deals that you can get from all of your suppliers and everything that happens on the production line. So Royal Enfield can be so cheap because they have, sorry, it's blowing a mosquito off my nose, because they have 
some of the best economies of scale you could possibly imagine in the motorcycle industry. You know, when you're building smaller batches of things, it's, you just can't get that, those economies of scales going to make it as competitive as a Fiat 500, a Hyundai i10, a Ford, Ford car, for example. You know, the reason they're, you know, compared to bike, probably relatively good value is because they just make them in such huge, huge numbers. Uh, you know, so when we see bikes coming in 13, 14K, perfectly normal now. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see how far this goes, Sean. You know, how much more can they keep going up before bikers are like, mm, no, I can't. No, I'm sorry, I can't justify that. I can't justify to my wife and my children, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, we, we can't go and get that family car that we needed because I've just gone and bought a motorbike. But don't worry. Don't worry, there's a 500 pound Toyota Yaris. Look, I'm gonna go and have a look at it next week. Fingers crossed, it should give us a few miles of happy, happy driving. You know, no partner is going to buy that. You know, if your glorious, shining new motorbike is parked up front and center in the garage and you're whizzing the family around in an old, I don't know, VW Charan from 1999. The bike, it should be cheap. It should be a cheap alternative to cars. I'm very much of that side of things. Um, yeah, electric bike, Sean. Uh, yes, I know, I know. Is, is an electric Bonneville going to come along, as an example? Can it give us enough of that feeling of character purely on, on the looks point of view? It's never going to do it from the electric engine or the electric motor, but can it do it if it's got the looks? That's my big question. Um, and the Triumph Speed Twin 900. I'm going to have that, Sean, hopefully for one week in Tenerife next week. So I'm hoping I'll have uh, the chance to do some really good mileage on that and get to test it out. Right, I move on. Let's have a look. Subscription. Okay, here we go. Sorry, I'm just flicking through where I am. Freddie, subscription model. Firstly, um, I think it's a terrible idea. I understand why a manufacturer would want to build just one bike and roll them off the production line with everything already configured. I imagine it saves them a lot of time and money. I don't work in the industry, but I would assume the components are very cheap to produce and it would be more expensive to configure to order. Exactly as Danny said earlier. However, for the consumer, it could cost you a lot of money and cause maintenance issues. Oh, now this is interesting. Okay, this is a very fair point here. I read this a few days ago. Um, okay, um, however, for the consumer, it could cost you a lot of money and cause maintenance issues. Imagine a situation where you have a bike, but you don't have any of the electronic aids enabled. What happens if one of these components breaks? Is your dashboard going to light up warning, uh, going to have a light up warning that you need to get your bike checked out? Are you going to have to pay to get the broken sensors fixed, the ones that you don't use? Will the system ignore any broken components that aren't being used? Then what happens in 30 years? Some bikes are still going strong that are well over 30 years old. For the next 50 years, do you have to pay KTM every month for one of these things? Say you have to pay, I don't know, five pounds a month uh, for hill hold control. That'll be 60 pounds a year. Now you can have hill control, 
hill hold control as an add-on from uh, for the ktm 1290 super adventure r for a one-time fee of 171 pounds at five pounds a month you'll have paid that cost off in less than three years if you get the bike on a 48 month pcp deal that add-on will cost you about £3.56 a month, then it is yours, bought and paid for. Will the subscription work in a similar way to PCP, but allow you to pause payments while you aren't using it? Once you have paid the total cost, does it then get enabled forever? Will it move between new owners? If I purchase a new bike and pay off 50% of the total cost of a feature, will the next owner just have to cover the remaining 50% or will KTM reset the cost? When will we have paid the manufacturer enough to let us have the feature forever? I'm so sorry, I, I'm so sorry, I didn't save your name, but that is a very fair point, especially I find the point especially interesting where this is going to be extra wiring on our bikes. It's going to be extra bits of hardware on our bikes. And even if these bits are dormant, are they going to be integrated into the wiring loom, into other areas of the bike, meaning that they could go wrong? And even though they're lying dormant, could the fact that maybe they fail or go wrong influence and impact other areas of the bike, meaning you still have to get it repaired, even though you didn't pay for it, you don't want it on your bike. Very good point. I move on. Freddie, I've got a question. My wife has recently passed a test. We're looking to get her a bike, but we're having some issues. She is five foot two and that's being generous. We're struggling to find some good options for her. She doesn't like the look of sporty bikes and she's definitely more interested in retro classic style. We also live in the countryside in Devon, so uh, we deal with gravel, mud, potholes and all manner of other fun things daily. She does have some back issues. So an upright riding position or an upright comfortable seating position is a must. We do want to do some traveling, so the option to take luggage is important to us. We've looked at the Royal Enfield Himalayan, I think it's great, but we'd like something with a little more beans than the 400cc engine. There's talk of a 650cc coming in a few years. Maybe we just need to see, or maybe we just need to wait. I'm sure the 411 would plus eight until then. We've been looking at the BMW F750GS, but it really isn't a style that she likes. And even used, they're hard to find for under £6,000, which is the very top end of our budget. Anything you can, can suggest would be greatly appreciated. Yes, I can. And I'm so sorry again, I forgot to save your name. My apologies. I have devised a list of three motorbikes for your wife. Okay, five foot two. First off, I sympathise, not because I'm necessarily specifically short, but because I've, I've sat on a few adventure bikes in the past that have such a high seat height. I'm always almost on my tiptoes and, and I found that unpleasant. And I also tried off-roading the Triumph 1200 XC Scrambler and I found the seat height was too high for it to be really enjoyable doing some off-roading on because for off-roading I really want to feel like my feet are planted 
so you mentioned gravel, you know, some slightly uneven surfaces. Y your wife needs to be able to, as close as possible, flat foot. The seat height is everything in this situation. Uh, being on a bike that's too big with a seat height that's slightly too high, it's, it's a really, really unnerving experience. And an unnerving experience leads to a less than enjoyable riding experience. So front and center here, we need to find a bike that has a really low seat height and everything else can work around it. So it needs to be comfortable. The seat height has to be super low and it has to be able to take panniers and it has to be retro styled because your wife likes retro styled bikes. And if, if you get her something else, she's not going to love it. And if you don't love your bike, you're not going to enjoy the experience of both going out doing some touring. So, and anyone else, send me in some comments or messages. You can do it through the website, freddydobs.com or email dob.bs at outlook.com. If you have any suggestions here, really low seat height, retro style bikes, let me know, I'll share them. These are the three I've got for you. Number one, Honda Rebel 500. It's a good looking bike and the seat height is incredibly low. That is a really compact bike that would be perfect for someone who's about five foot two. I think your wife will really like the overall position of that. The second one is the Triumph Street Twin. Look, the seat height is a bit higher on this, but I rode this bike for a thousand miles about two and a half years ago, and it's a really unintimidating, relaxing bike to ride. And the seat height is low, and I think it would be okay for your wife at five foot two. And I think you can get those for under £5,000. Similarly, the Honda Rebel, I'm sure you can get those, the 500cc one, for £4,500. Both bikes can have panniers and look good with them. Um, and I think both will do the trick. And I'm going to throw a left field one in here for you. You may laugh, but don't necessarily dismiss it immediately. The Harley-Davidson Sportster 883. This is the smallest engine Harley-Davidson Sportster. I've only ever ridden the 1200, but the 883 Sportster is a really small bike with a, a laughably low seat height. I, probably the lowest I think I may ever have seen. That, possibly even out of all of the three, is the one where I can almost... I, I hope I can guarantee your wife would be able to flat foot it. Maybe the Rebel 500 she could flat foot as well, but... That will be comfortable, um, it will have an incredibly low seat height and you'll be able to take panniers as well. It will be, you know, much raw and more characterful than the other two, but I think you should have that in your shortlist as well. Let me know what you go for. Okay, I move on. Freddie, good afternoon. Depending on when you read this, um, I'm pissed off as an understatement. I live in South London. I've just heard that the ultra low emission zone will be incorporating in my area from August 2023. I've recently purchased an older bike after listening to a podcast for a year or so. And now it looks like it's going to cost me £12.50 every day I want to take it out. As, as I use it three times, at least in the week, this means that it will cost me around £150 a month. I cannot believe it. So I'm going to be looking for newer, more soulless bike, which let's face it will not be the same. I can't believe that the government are taking away my greatest weekly pleasure. Don't tell the wife I said that. I simply, I simply can't really afford the additional £1,800 a year additional tax. 
to simply ride an older bike. There must be so many guys and girls out there in my position that it just doesn't it doesn't make the pill any easier to swallow. Oh, you know, when you put it like that in a yearly amount, £1,800 additional. You know, it's a very, very good point you make for everyone out there, and thank you for highlighting this. I sold my Suzuki Bandit. One of the reasons is because, yeah, this ULEZ zone came in and I would have had to pay, as you did, as you will, £12.50 a day. And I just thought, I cannot stomach that. You know, you know the, the point of this, I want to be able to ride my bike, whiz through traffic, not be paying any fees. I, need, I, want, you know, I want to be as free as possible here without, you know, biking should be cheap. That's what I'm trying to say. And that takes away a big chunk of it. And you're right, you know, you can buy a new bike in a year of paying that. And it's heartbreaking because that can be a pride and joy there that you have in London, you know, through no fault of your own. Suddenly you're, you're going to be walloped with this bill and you're going to be having second thoughts every time you think about taking out just for a casual ride. Because casual rides to the coffee shop, for example, well, they won't exist because why would you pay £12.50 just to go for a coffee? Or every time you want to leave the city, I sympathise hugely with you. Yeah, you know, this is just the world we're going in and it's it's kind of one of the reasons I only really look at bikes from about 20, 2008, 2010 onwards just for that very reason. Let me know what you go for. It's just a good thing that are now more and more of these modern classic bikes coming, you know, that do have some of that character, the Royal Enfields, BSA Triumph, you know, uh, but I feel for you. Right, I move on. Have a great weekend. Uh, okay, oh, last one. Let me squeeze this in. Freddie. Uh, I was laughing away to myself at your discussion about not wearing full gear while riding and the, ple and the pleasure of a t-shirt and an open-faced helmet ride. Unfortunately for me, uh, living in Scotland, that would be quite a rarity. As a new rider, I told myself I'd never ride without AAA riding gear. For everyone that doesn't know, that's the highest level of safety rating. And I would try to not budge on that point. So I opted for casual, subtle type of biking gear, uh, biking, uh, biking gear styling so that I could easily park up and feel acceptable to go for a coffee, etc. However, as the colder months have set in, I soon realised my vented summer jacket with a combination of jumpers underneath no longer cuts it. And I quickly found that the majority of stylish, warmer biking jackets are AA or less. So after a few months of riding, I've caved into my own principles. I think regarding gear, as long as the rider accepts the risk... Uh, that may come along with wearing less protection, then it isn't anyone else's business to tell them it's wrong or right. As it isn't putting other road users in any more or less risk. I'd also love to hear if you have any recommendations for warm winter jackets and short gloves. I may not ride far this year, um, but I won't wait until it warms up again. Thanks, Cal. Cal. Yes, I did great here from Scottish riders. I'll actually be up in Scotland, I hope, next year doing a tour, possibly the Highland Scramble. You know, it's funny, Cal, you said this, because just hearing you say this, it takes me back to when I passed my test. And I, you know, I was so idealistic. I said to my parents, you know, my parents were really anti it. I was living in London at the time. My parents uh, in St Albans in a town north of London. I, and, you know, of, of course they were worried about me passing. And I said, no, honestly, 
Marpa, it's fine. It's fine. Like, I don't want to ride fast. I just, you know, even on the motorway, I just sit there and, you know, I'm always fully geared up and I'm always in the slow lane on the motorway. You know, well, that, that changed after about three weeks. I was busy going into the overtaking lane about a year later. I ended up buying a, a super naked in the Triumph Speed Triple that I, I really thought was going to kill me. So, yeah, my, all, my core, you know, ideologies, they, they kind of went out of the window fairly quickly, I, I have to admit. <laughs> But Cal, I've got, yeah, I've got two tips for you here. Uh, for a jacket, there's one jacket for me that is head and shoulders above all the others with regards to absolute wind protection and warmth. And especially being up in Scotland where you're going to get those biting winds. Cal, it's the Heritage, the Garibaldi Heritage Jacket. Garibaldi is the company, it's a Spanish company, but they sell them in plenty of places in the UK. And the Heritage is the jacket. It comes up slightly small, as a lot of Spanish gear does. So, for example, I'm usually medium, but I buy a large in this, and I would not be able to wear it if it was a medium. So size slightly up with it. The key... The reason it's the best jacket, it's 100% waterproof, doesn't let even one drop of rain and I've tested it to the limit. So it's completely waterproof and, and this is key, this is key to staying warm. It is 100%, and I promise you on this, 100% windproof. You do not get any wind chill through this jacket. It blocks it all out. If I'm going out for a properly cold weather ride or an extended period of riding where the weather is, let's say 10 degrees or less, there's nothing else that I'll wear apart from this because this is the only one that offers the absolute protection. And for gloves, that's a very good question. It's a really, really hard point. The best... The best mix I've got, and I'll be honest, I have not found the perfect gloves that you know, keep 100% windproofing and keep your hands completely warm on a one hour ride at five degrees or less. For me, I haven't found it yet. The closest thing I've found that's at least quite small and streamlined, and they look okay, I'm not going to say they're my dream gloves, they look okay, is the Racer 1927, Racer 1927, Gridder, to GTX. Have a look at those, they're about 90 euros. They'll keep your hands warm up until about seven degrees or so. Lower than that on the motorway, you will start to get a wind chill, but they're, they're fairly decent gloves and they're, they're short. I don't like the long gloves, these are short. Cal, best of luck, happy riding. Right, everyone, I'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much all for listening. Have an amazing weekend, amazing rest of the week, and I'll speak to you all in the next one.